everyone. I'm John Wainwright, and this is the Cap Impact Podcast, a podcast by the Capital Center for Law and Policy at the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. McGeorge was fortunate to recently receive a $1 million gift from the Sokopoulos Family Foundation, and thanks to the University Pacific's Powell Fund, which matches large gifts, that became a $2 million donation that created the Justice Anthony M. Kennedy Endowed Chair. And to celebrate that gift and this new chair, the school had an event called Justices on Justice. It was a conversation comparing different justice issues and constitutional law issues across levels of government and countries. As you can imagine, Justice Kennedy is one of the speakers on that panel. It was moderated by McGeorge Professor and Capital Center Director Leslie Kilo Jacobs. And I will let her introduce the other three speakers on the panel. This is from a live event, like I mentioned, that we had in October. October, so there's a little bit of audio quality issues, though. Without further ado, Professor Leslie Jacobs. I'm charged with the great honor of presenting our four justices to you and the very difficult task of condensing each of their long and extraordinarily impressive biographies into manageable introductions. Please forgive the brevity and turn to your program or to Google for much, much more information. My first introduction is of Associate Justice Anthony M. Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court. Justice Kennedy was appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1987 and served on the Supreme Court for my entire career as a lawyer and a law professor. His decisions have influenced the laws that we all live by in many different areas and at the federal, state, and local levels. Justice Kennedy, as Dean Schwartz mentioned, is McGeorge's longest serving professor teaching constitutional law at night on our campus and during the day in our Salzburg summer program. We're so pleased to have him back with us tonight. Judge Ann Power Ford is an international judge, a senior counsel, and an academic. She was elected in 2008 to be the judge in respect of Ireland at the European Court of Human Rights, referred to by those in the know as the Strasbourg Court after the location in that city in France. Working in French and English, she delivered strong and influential opinions on many subjects, But to me, the theme of protecting the rights of children, minorities, and others subject to persecution reverberates through her cases. Currently, Judge Power Ford is presiding judge of the Constitutional Court Chamber of the Kosovo Specialist Chambers, located in The Hague. Justice Joseph Grodin has also served as a judge, practicing attorney and academic. He served as Associate Justice of the California Court of Appeal, presiding justice of that court, and as Associate Justice of the California Supreme Court. Justice Grodin was a full-time professor and scholar at UC Hastings College of Law for many years and is currently a visiting professor at Berkeley Law. Justice Grodin specializes, among other things, on state constitutional law, which I must admit, as a federal constitutional law professor, remains somewhat of a mystery to me. So I'll look forward to being enlightened this evening. Dr. Wolfgang Brandstetter is currently serving as judge, Constitutional Court of the Republic of Austria, as well as special advisor to the Commissioner of Justice of the European Union and Professor of Criminal Law, Vienna University of Economics and Business Administration. He worked for two decades as a criminal defense attorney, during which time he was also engaged in academia, teaching criminal law and heading an academic institute. He served as Minister of Justice for the Republic of Austria, which sounds to me like it's roughly equivalent to our position of Attorney General, who heads the entire Federal Department of Justice. And he was also the country's 2017 Vice Chancellor. Thanks to all four of you for being with us this evening. I'll now turn to our first question. 
with Justice Kennedy being the first one to respond. The four of you hail from high courts from across the country and around the world. We all know some things about your courts, but perhaps not as much as would be optimal to engage with tonight's program. To begin our comparative conversation, a brief overview of your courts would be helpful. Their locations, memberships, responsibilities, and operations. What features distinguish the type of cases your court decides, the ways that your court operates, and the scope of its authority from the others represented here tonight? And in what ways are they the same? Justice Kennedy? In this city, we see physical manifestations of the law, and when you see the Capitol, you see court buildings and so forth. But we must be interested not just in the reality, but, but the idea. And McGeorge is very, very important in being Sacramento's law school. Sacramento's law school in the middle of the place where law is made and where law is followed and where law produces real results. Uh, Aristotle wrote in his uh, aesthetics, uh, he gave some advice to playwrights, but it applies to judges and to lawyers as well. He told playwrights you can write about what was, what is, and what ought to be. Lawyers always must find out what was. What's our history? Why are we here? What's the meaning of the Constitution? What's our heritage? How do we keep it? What is? What is the current state of our democracy and what ought it to be? And those questions are the ones that this school must always ask. Now you'd like to hear about our court. <laughs> um, around the world, one way that uh, parliaments or legislators control courts, because parliaments and legislators don't particularly like courts, is to give them too much work. If you, you can bury a court and make it ineffective by giving it too much work. Some years ago, the, the Supreme Court of India had a, a backlog of, of, of 50,000 cases. It, just, it made it ineffective. Uh, our court chooses the case that it should hear. We see cases where we think the result is wrong, but we let it go. Uh, because if there's another court after us, they would say we were wrong too. This could go on forever. So we limit uh, the cases we take to cases first where the courts of appeals are divided, where the profession is spending time arguing on an issue and courts have reached different conclusions, or we wait until there's a federal statute that's been declared unconstitutional, or we wait until there's a, a major public emergency that, that, requires, that requires our intervention. Every year, about 8,000 petitions, called petitions for certiorari, are filed asking, please take this case. Uh, and the 8,000 petitions, the judges read, it's like doing push-ups, you read so many every morning. Uh, and uh, you, all you need to do is make a little mark. And if you make that little mark on the petition, then all of the nine justices must discuss it. And we have conferences throughout the term, October through June, do we take this case? And any one justice can ask that it be discussed, and all nine justices then discuss whether it should be taken. Uh, from the 8,000 or so petitions, we make little marks on about 500 of them, so we discuss about 500 a year. And from those 500, we take anywhere from 70 to, 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 a, to 100. And that's how we control, and that's how we control our workload. Then the briefing begins, and the briefs are, are public. Uh, the briefs are scholarly and, and, and well-written, although I must say I've never read a brief in 43 years that I couldn't put down in the middle, but other than that... <laughs> Uh, um, uh, uh, that's, that's, the briefing begins, and, and, and we work with our law clerks. We have four law clerks, and uh, I uh, uh, tell my law clerks uh, the, they take a quarter of the cases. <laughs> I, I one, one time was in uh, 
uh, Alabama when I was the circuit judge for the 11th Circuit, and uh, I was meeting with the lawyers and the judges from the circuit. And I said, well, now, my clerks read a fourth of the briefs. I have to read them all. And uh, sometimes there's a very difficult uh, set of briefs, and I'll read them a second time the weekend before the oral argument. And I like music in the background, and I play opera, and I have what I call one opera and two opera briefs. <laughs> well, uh, this was a Saturday. They were dressed to play golf or tennis, and they were too polite to roll their eyes. But uh, I knew that uh, this, this sounded, what, pretentious, highfalutin, this guy from the East talking about the opera. And so I said, oh, I said, oh I've lost this audience. But I, I, I got saved because an attorney raised his hand. He said, well, I've got a rule like that when I read those, when I write those briefs. I said, oh? He said, yeah, I have a one six-pack brief and a two six-pack brief. <laughs> I, I, I said, I remember your last brief. I think it was a three six-pack brief. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the briefs come. And, and we're, we're very well prepared. Uh, and some of the European justice uh, courts, as, as you probably know, uh, Judge Groden, and I'm sure as you know, Doctor, uh, and, and, and you can correct me, uh, uh, Judge Powerford, but uh, in, in, in England, they spend more time with the attorneys in the oral argument learning about the case. We learn about the case before we go on the bench for the briefs. Uh, we have a rule, we do not discuss the case with each other until after the oral argument. So I prepare the briefs, uh, and we do not talk with other judges because we don't want what little cliques or cabals. So then we have oral argument, and the first time it would be as if we're sitting here, uh, and each uh, justice can ask a question. The first time I have any, we have any indication of how a judge might be thinking about the case, what problems the justice sees, is from the questions. And a good oral argument is often a conversation the judges are asking among themselves. I'll ask a question of the attorney. I said, well, well isn't it true? And I'm really saying, and listen, Dr. Banstetter, I'm really interested in this issue. And then he'll say, but isn't it true that? And he'll say, not so fast, Kennedy. I'm interested in it. So, so this, this is the, an oral argument dynamic. And it's the first time we've ever discussed the case with each other in the oral argument session. And sometimes we behave rather badly, interrupt each other and so forth. Um, and sometimes the argument, you know, it's like a, like a class, Dean. Some classes are good, some are not so good. Some are flat, some are not, you know. Um, after the oral argument, we then have conference. Uh, we have a double door, a, a, a little vestibule. Uh, so you have to have, go through two doors to get in our conference room. It's just to remind us that what we say is confidential. There's just the nine of us. and. Uh, the uh, senior, uh, the, the chief justice speaks first, and then the most senior justice goes down to the last judge. And I like that as a junior justice, I was the last to speak. And if it was 4-4, I could kind of have the suspense come out a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, they, and they would listen to it. But our, 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 our conferences, one reason they're confidential is so that you can try out certain ideas, so that you can uh, um, maybe, uh, make a suggestion that you're not even sure will work and get your colleagues. So, the, so this is a very productive uh, uh, exercise. And our, and our present, Justice Rehnquist was very strict. Uh, we would go down in order of seniority, and then that, that would be it. Chief Justice Roberts likes us to engage. We, we don't interrupt each other. If the, the senior speaks first, then the, then the next most senior. No interruption. But then after that's over, people ask each other questions and so forth. And it's a really, it's a really wonderful dynamic. 
Then comes the opinion writing. You're assigned, the, this, the Chief Justice assigns the opinion if, uh, to the majority if he's in the majority, or the dissent if he's in the dissent. The next, uh, the, and the senior justice in the dissent of the majority assigns it. Uh, and we try to keep the workload even. We don't want to give the railroad reorganization cases all to one justice. Uh, and, uh, and we like to keep the workload even, so we assign the case. And then you sit down and you write. And those of you who are students, you know, uh, all of us know, you, you write on your yellow pad or the internet, and what, the first thing you write is a piece of junk, and it goes in the wastebasket, uh, because you're thinking. Uh, and so uh, you write this opinion, and you send it around to the other judge. And again, no, no discussion. We, we, sometimes Justice Breyer was right next to me, and I, one of us would see uh, a little technical problem in the case, and so we'd talk about it, and then we'd immediately send a memo to our colleagues. Uh, Stephen has talked with me about this problem, and we just thought you want to know, just because we don't want any private conversation. So anyway, the opinion goes out that you've written, and then you wait to see what happens. Justice Brennan one time had his clerks come, our clerks come in July, and uh, Brennan got back uh, in, in August on his application to meet his clerk. He said, what's the single most important word for you to remember while you're here at the court? And then somebody said, liberty, justice, freedom, equal protection. He said, no, no, five. It takes five votes to do anything around here. <laughs> um, so you circulate this opinion, and, you're, and you want to get the, the five votes. Then the returns come in. Somebody said, well, um, my vote was with you at conference, but now it, it seems to me there's a certain problem with this section, and my decision is to wait for the dissent. And you say, oh, no. So then the dissent comes around. And sometimes the, the court switches. Uh, sometimes you think you were in the dissent, but you're really in the majority or vice versa. And uh, we, we do try to get five to give uh, guidance to the system. Uh, and in appellate writing, you have to make the decision. If you write very specifically just about this case, then it doesn't give any guidance. If you write in broad general terms, you're probably going to be wrong. So you have to uh, find, find the middle balance. And that's the opinion. Once the opinion is out, we're the, uh, oh, incidentally, we get all of our work done by June 30 every year. We're the only branch of the government that gets our work done on time. Thank you very much. Um, we, um, all of the opinions are released by June 30. Uh, we give reasons for what we do. Uh, those reasons are designed to compel allegiance, to compel respect for what we've done. Uh, sometimes people say that our court is anti-majoritarian, um, but uh, and, and that and that's true in the short term. But uh, it's my, um, my my belief that we're majoritarian in the long term. In the long term, people understand the reasons for what we do, and that's that's how the law works because uh, the law must command uh, the, the respect of the citizens or we do not have the rule of law. Thank that you so much. It was a little long, I'm sorry, but you can afford <laughs> Judge my Power Ford. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Professor um, Jacobson. Thank you indeed to, to the McGeorge School of Law for the invitation to participate here today. The court in which I had the privilege to sit was, um, as Professor Jacobs said, the European Court of Human Rights and it is located in Strasbourg, France, France, which is just on the border between France and Germany. And that 
actually proves to be uh, quite, quite symbolic in many ways because the court was established after the Second World War and I'll speak a little bit about that later. Its membership is comprised of 47 judges, one judge from every country in Europe, that is, from Iceland to Azerbaijan. Every country bar one, Belarus, is represented on the court, and judges, when they are elected, they are not elected to represent their individual countries, but they are now, once elected, European judges, and their obligation is to ensure that the European Convention on Human Rights is, is essentially observed throughout every member state. The responsibilities of the Strasbourg Court uh, primarily are to ensure that the fundamental human rights which are set out in the Convention are observed uh, in each member state, as I said. After the Second World War, 10 countries of Europe came together and essentially agreed that never again would any state be entitled to do what the German state did to its citizens and the, indeed to those uh, beyond uh, citizenship but who were within the jurisdiction. And that sense of never again really continues to drive the court because each member state, without loss of sovereignty, nevertheless agrees to subject itself to international scrutiny. Never again would a state be entitled to treat its citizens in a manner which evaded uh, international supervision. And essentially, the Strasbourg Court, it's not a court of appeal, but it is a supervisory court. It reviews the judgments of the domestic courts of any particular state that appears before it, and it determines whether or not the final judgments of those courts were sufficient to respect and vindicate the fundamental rights protected in the Convention. The court operates um, in a number of ways. It delivers decisions on inadmissibility, and you can imagine with 800 million people within the jurisdiction of the court, uh, there is a huge uh, number of applications every year from individuals who feel aggrieved that their state has failed to vindicate their, their human rights. You can have anything from the most serious cases of torture or disappearances right down to an individual who feels that he didn't get a fair trial when he got a speeding ticket and yeah, he wants to come to Strasbourg to complain, again, to complain about it. So you can imagine you know, what, what's involved in sorting through all of those applications. So the vast majority of um, rulings of the court are decisions on inadmissibility. And sometimes there is a decision on, in, on admissibility and there will be a vote and the case will either go forward to be judged on its merits if the judges con consider that it's admissible and if it's inadmissible, it will, be, it will be dismissed. When a case goes forward for judgment on the merits, the vast majority of judgments are handed down by chambers, sections of the court, and each chamber is comprised of seven judges. The chambers are representing various geographical locations, so there's an attempt to have a mix of locations of countries within a chamber, and also different legal systems. Some judges come from the common law system, like Ireland, others come from the civil law jurisdiction. Um, so there's an attempt to mix the, to mix the various legal systems. And decision, judgments of the court then are voted on by the seven. If a, if a judge wishes to file a dissenting opinion, he or she is free to do so. And I think dissenting opinions can play a very important part of the, uh, of the function of a court, an international court. Because by filing a dissenting opinion, a judge will usually be attempting to flag to other colleagues that this is an important case and an important matter of interpretation or application of the convention arises. When the decision is, when the judgment is 
then delivered, the parties have three months within which to apply for a referral of the case to the Grand Chamber. Usually the losing party obviously wants to have a second, uh, wants the court to take a second look at it. And the Grand Chamber is comprised of 17 judges from across Europe. And those 17 judges will come together to, to read the Chamber judgment uh, and to consider, to consider the arguments of the parties. Um, usually, in whether it's Chamber or Grand Chamber, a case will be allocated to a judge rapporteur and that judge rapporteur, in consultation with the registry staff, will prepare a first draft. So if a lawyer brings me a case, I will read the papers, I will discuss the case with the lawyer, and then I will give an indication as to how I think that case should be decided. And on the basis of those instructions, the lawyer will draft a proposed um, decision or judgment. Um, that proposal is then brought to the chamber, or the committee of three judges, depending on the formation, and the chamber will discuss the proposal. And then if judges disagree with it, um, they, will, they will indicate their disagreement with the proposal and set out the reasons why. I very much liked um, what Justice Kennedy said about in, in the US Supreme Court, whereby judges don't discuss the case beforehand. Um, I think informal conversations do occur on some, on some courts. Uh, and having heard you, Justice Kennedy, I think it's a good idea that people remain silent until the matter is actually before the court. That said, depending on the case and people being what they are, it was usually possible to kind of have a, have a hunch as to how a particular judge may, may consider a particular argument. Um, the types of cases, the court deals with all human rights abuses. So from the right to life, the prohibition on torture, the prohibition on human trafficking or forced labor, the right to liberty, so forth, the right to free expression, privacy, and so on. So although it's a human rights court and dealing only with human rights cases, it actually deals with any issue that comes before the domestic courts, including commercial cases, because Article 6 of the Convention guarantees the right to a fair trial. So in reality, anybody who's aggrieved by the fairness of his or her trial at domestic level, whatever that trial was about, civil or criminal, can bring an application to the Strasbourg court complaining of a breach of Article 6. The scope of its authority, I suppose its nearest comparator would be the US Supreme Court in that it is the final authority in Europe on the question of how the European Convention, the Constitution in your country, and how the European Convention is to be interpreted and applied throughout Europe. It sets, I should say, the minimum standards. There's nothing to prevent a country from enhancing human rights protection for its individuals. But the court sets down the minimum standards which must be observed uh, in every country that has ratified the convention. Because at the end of the day, each state has agreed to guarantee to its citizens and to those that come within its jurisdiction the rights and freedoms set forth in the convention. I'll finish on a note of differences between our court and the, and, and the US court, and I, I would say two. Firstly, there is the right to individual petition. So unlike the US Supreme Court, the Strasbourg court judges don't get to pick and choose which cases they will deal with. Now, in reality, of course, because of the volume of applications coming before the court, um, a lot of them are sifted out as inadmissible. But once a case is admissible, then it goes forward for a decision on its merits. Um, the second difference, I suppose, would be on the terms of office. A judge of the Strasbourg Court is appointed for nine years non-renewable. Originally, we had a system whereby judges could have their term renewed after six years, but that depended on their country nominating them once again to serve on the court. And of course, if I bring in a judgment, which the Irish government didn't like, I'd obviously, um, indirectly, some people would say, there could, be, there could be pressure on a judge. So I'm very happy to see that the system changed uh, in 2009 under, under um, 
Protocol 14, whereby now judges are appointed once for a nine-year term. I think I'll leave it at that, and I'd be very interested to hear from the other judges on the same question. Well, first, I want to thank the Dean uh, for the invitation to be here and to participate. It's a great honor to participate with uh, such great jurists from around the world. Um, the California Supreme Court, on which I served, uh, is different in some respects and similar in others to both uh, Justice Kennedy's court and Judge uh, Power Ford's court. One difference that strikes me, although it's fairly trivial, is this. The California Constitution contains a provision that says that the judges must decide the case, each case within 90 days from the time that it is submitted for decision or they don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> for many years, including the years I was on the court, the Supreme Court interpreted that provision to mean that a case was not submitted until the Supreme Court said it was. <laughs> and the Supreme Court didn't say it was until they were ready to file an opinion. And that, that situation continued until after I left the court and until some lawyer, I think from Sacramento, I'm not sure, sued the court and the controller, the state controller, to stop payment for, for each of the justices uh, because the court never got an opinion out within 90 days of oral argument and asked that their salaries be stopped. And the Supreme Court settled the case, uh, <laughs> as good courts will do, uh, by agreeing that a case would be deemed submitted at the time of oral argument unless time for briefing was extended. So that has this peculiar consequence, that the Supreme Court has seven justices. They're each going to weigh in on the opinion 90 days from uh, the time of oral argument is a very short time yeah. in which to get out an opinion if you're getting out an opinion, opinions in substantial number of cases. So the current California Supreme Court's practice is to circulate a memo in advance of oral argument, which is in reality a proposed opinion. And the other justices weigh in, either with concurrences or proposed dissents, before oral argument ever takes place. Now, if you had a current member of the court here instead of me, I would bet you that they would assure you that minds are not made up uh, by the time of oral argument, that oral argument is very important still, and you can judge that for yourself, but it's a, it's yeah. a different, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, not such a great procedure. There are other differences. For example, uh, justices on most state appellate and Supreme Courts uh, are elected in one way or another. And they serve for uh, a, a term, and then their names appear on the ballot uh, in a so-called retention election, and people vote yes or no. I had the unfortunate experience of being on the court for the first time when justices who were actually removed from the court through a retention election 
Rose Byrd was the Chief Justice at the time, uh, Cruz Reynoso and myself, all three of us uh, were discarded by the electorate in a campaign which focused uh, on the death penalty. Uh, uh, the campaign against us was that we were insufficiently enthusiastic about the death penalty. And uh, since then, there have been no judges removed, but there have been uh, campaigns, and there, have been, and there judges have been removed in other states from state supreme courts in campaigns that focused on the death penalty or more recently on same-sex marriage or on some other issue. I'm supposed to say that, uh, that uh, elections are, are part of the process uh, and, and uh, judges welcome them. In fact, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> and I, if, if it were possible to change that procedure, I would certainly support uh, changing it, but I think it's very unlikely. State, state Supreme Court is not a national court like Justice Kennedy's court or like uh, Justice Branstetter's court, uh, nor is it a supranational court, as the case of Judge Power Ford, but it is a subnational court, uh, which means that it, it, it's authority is a bit more modest. California has its own constitution. Every state has its constitution. And you may be surprised to learn that state constitutions existed before the federal constitution. The California constitution was patterned after the constitution of Iowa, which was in turn patterned after the constitution of Virginia, which was adopted, I think, in 1775 or thereabouts. So it is possible for state constitutions to differ from the federal constitution in the provisions which bear upon the protection of individual rights. We have in California uh, Article I, which, which uh, is somewhat similar to the Bill of Rights, but it is different in certain respects. It has certain rights uh, which are not contained in the federal constitution, or at least not explicitly, for example, an explicit right to privacy. It has other provisions which are phrased differently. And even when they're phrased in exactly the same way, uh, the California court feels quite free uh, to give an independent interpretation uh, to the California constitution. It will give due consideration to the decisions of the uh, United States Supreme Court. It will give due consideration to decisions of other state courts. And as we will discuss later, it will actually give due consideration to opinions of international tribunals. But uh, the California Supreme Court is the last word on what the state constitution means. And the United States Supreme Court will defer uh, to that interpretation and will not review uh, the decision unless it conflicts with some provision in the federal constitution. And let me just give you an example of that and, and then I'll conclude. A California statute said, as many statutes did used to say, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And uh, that statute was challenged under the California Constitution and the California Supreme Court decided as a matter of state constitutional law uh, that 
a ban on same-sex marriage violated the state constitutional equivalence of the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause. That decision was then overturned by an initiative measure in California because in those states which have direct democracy provisions in their constitution, decisions of the court can, can be, uh, excuse me, provisions of the constitution can be modified in the case of California by a simple majority vote. Uh, in other states, usually there is a supermajority requirement or it has to be adopted uh, in two successive elections or make it a little more difficult uh, than, than simply half of the people plus one. But that's what we have in California. So the California Supreme Court decision in that same-sex marriage case uh, was in effect overruled uh, not by the Supreme Court but by the people through the exercise of the initiative. Then another case went to the Supreme Court uh, involving a similar question in four other states and uh, the United States Supreme Court and what I have to say is a truly beautiful opinion by Justice Kennedy and, and, and a piece of, of uh, legal literature, uh, almost, uh, almost poetic in some of its uh, portions, but nevertheless uh, rigor rigorously reasoned, uh, decided that as a matter of the federal constitution, uh, same-sex marriage could not be prohibited. So that's, a, that's an example of how the state constitution and the federal constitution uh, work together in a federal system. Let, let me just say, uh, Justice Grodin, you're a marvelous example that from a temporary and bitter defeat, there can be great victory. And the distinguished service you've given to the profession, your writing, your teaching after leaving the court are a tribute to you and a tribute to the law that you love. Thank you for your career. Very kind. Dr. Brandstetter. Well, first off, let me say that I'm truly thankful for this generous invitation by the McGeorge School of Law here in Sacramento. It is a great honor and pleasure for me to be here representing the Austrian Constitutional Court, which is bound by the same European law system as most of the other Supreme Courts in continental Europe. So what I say about our constitutional court is basically also valid for the constitutional courts of all member states of the European Union. And uh, I want to mention that it's a great honor and pleasure for me to meet uh, Justice Kennedy for the first time. Justice Kennedy, we all know that your name always has been very popular in uh, Europe, but uh, you have become even more popular during the last weeks for some reasons in a positive sense. <laughs> I just wanted to mention it. So before giving you a brief overview of our CURT, its responsibility, duties, and operations, I would like to mention that the Austrian Constitutional CURT dates back to 1920 and was the first of its kind in Europe. The constitution that made this possible was at least strongly influenced 
probably created by a world-famous man of legal science, Mr. Hans Kelsen, who had to leave Europe in 1940 because of his Jewish roots. He found a new home, scientifically and personally, here in California at the University of Berkeley, where he became a distinguished and very, very respected professor of law, and where he died in 1973. And he's still very honored in Austria. Mentioning facts like this is not only building bridges between Austria and California, beyond Arnold Schwarzenegger, but, <laughs> but it also tells the cruel story of the last century. And keeping this in mind, it is easier to understand how important constitutional law in general and the rule of law in particular are as a guarantee of a peaceful life in society on the basis of respected fundamental rights for everyone. It was Hans Kelsen who once said that the Constitution without a constitutional court is like a lantern without a light in it. So it's up to the judges of the Supreme Courts to enlighten the path to justice. And this path sometimes causes areas of strong or even stormy political demands. I can only speak for Austria and the similar courts in Central Europe, but this phenomenon seems to be a worldwide one. Since I was a politician myself, serving as a Minister of Justice for four years, I can understand the point of view of politicians. From a politician's perspective, the Constitutional or the Supreme Court can be compared to a red traffic light during the rush hour when you're in a hurry anyway. But nevertheless, you have to say stop and show the red light. That's exactly what Supreme Courts stand for. And for us in Central Europe, this is easier than for you in the United States, since the constitutional Supreme Courts in the member states of the European Union, they have an institution, a highest court above them, that can show them red lights too. In particular, the European Court in Luxembourg, which is the highest court for all member states of the European Union regarding European law, and most important, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg whose decisions are binding for all the member states of the European Convention on Human Rights. And this is also valid, also the case for a number of countries beyond the European Union. This is important, and it, including the states of the Balkan area, Ukraine, Georgia, and even Turkey and Russia, for instance. In Austria, we have a special situation since the European Convention on Human Rights has been granted the rank of constitutional law by constitutional order already in 1964. Therefore, the European Convention on Human Rights is equal in status to other national fundamental rights and is directly applicable constitutional law in Austria. And moreover, the referendum of 1994 provided the basis for a federal constitutional law on Austria's accession to the European Union which required a total reform of the Austrian constitution and authorized the relevant bodies responsible under constitutional law to conclude the state treaty on Austria's succession to the European Union. And in brief, through this constitutional enabling and opening clause, union law was put on a level equivalent to national law in Austria, which implies in particular the special significance of the jurisprudence of the Court of Justice of the European Union for the interpretation and application of union law. Hence, 
the jurisprudence of the highest courts in Austria, including our constitutional court, acknowledges the principle of primacy of union law over national law. So this is the legal framework for our constitutional court, the legal framework that is to a large extent uh, determined by European law. And how do we work in practice? Well, we are 14 judges in the constitutional court, uh, including the president who has no vote. So certain judges have to decide. And usually we get a written proposal from one of us. And we have assistants who prepare these uh, proposals. And then we discuss the proposals among us. Usually uh, the other judges agree to a proposal, but uh, it's not always the case, no. Sometimes even the result is different from the proposal that came from one of uh, our colleagues. And uh, we do not have, this is another difference, we do not have dissenting votes. Um, according to our constitution, dissenting votes are not possible. Well, we think that dissenting votes would uh, somehow undermine the authority of the court as such, so that's why uh, they are not uh, possible in Austria. So this is how we work, and uh, basically I can say that uh, the, the issues we, we deal with, they are quite the same. Uh, you have to deal with two, but uh, that's the next question. Consti Thank you so much. Con constitutions last uh, only so long as they have the support and the, and the reverence of their people. Uh, Dr. Branstetter has just mentioned uh, Hans Kelsen. He wrote the Constitution for Austria after the First World War, um, but then the people didn't care about that Constitution, and he himself had to leave Austria, went to the University of California at Berkeley. When I was studying uh, political theory, I went to see him. I was at Stanford, but he was gracious to meet me when he was a professor at Cal, and I thought, well, I spent 10 minutes with him, and he was so gracious. and. Uh, uh, because of some of his guidance, that's why I continue to study in political theory. He, he was wonderful. But uh, in all of our courts, we have to make sure that the people understand that the Constitution and the law have meaning for us in our own time. And I'm just curious to know, and I, I, I don't want to take over your, your question, but I've, uh, uh, does, does, does the European Court of, of Human Rights in, in Strasbourg do you think that the Europeans are reading their opinions and, are, and, and as a result are having more loyalty to the European Convention on Human Rights? I think it's mixed depending on the, on the countries. Some countries with a long tradition for human rights protection um, probably didn't give the Convention as much, as much weight as they might have done. I'm thinking of Ireland, for example, we have fundamental protections uh, of human rights going back to 1922. So when I was a barrister, um, if somebody pleaded a case under the convention, it was kind of, oh my God, they have nothing else to say because, you know, if you can't win your case on the constitution and you have to depend on the convention, it kind of flagged a, maybe a weak case. But that certainly is changing, I think, today um, because it's now 15 years since the European Court of Human Rights, since the convention was given more effect in, in Ireland. And certainly if you look at the concept of family under the Irish constitution, family was the family founded on marriage, which obviously now has changed under the convention. Um, so, so I think it's, it depends on the country. Say for some emerging democracies or restored democracies, they very much depend upon the judgments of the courts to send signals to their own governments as to how human rights uh, must be vindicated. So it very much depends. Thank you so much.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. And thank you to Cogent Legal for recording the audio that was today's podcast and next week's podcast as well. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a five star review and rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find Cap Impact online at www.capimpactca.com and on Facebook and Twitter at Cap Impact CA. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week.